Entropy to Work, a podcast about technology, engineering, and culture. Oops, just hit my microphone here. I'm Thiago Ebo, and I am your host. So, a lot of positive feedback over the last two episodes, which is really funny because in terms of content, they are almost uh, opposite. One we have uh, with episode with English, really technical, going into gas turbines and helicopter engines. And on the other hand, we have a more science popularization kind of episode with Frank where we talked about nuclear energy. So, yeah, really interesting. As I said in the start of the podcast, not sure where we're going, but it's been really interesting. I'm really enjoying these conversations. So, we keep going, right? Um, as usual, please keep the feedbacks coming and suggestions. Also, please subscribe to your favorite streaming platforms. And that's enough housekeeping for today. <laughs> we have a really fun episode with my dear friend, Martin Wissenblidern. He's a software developer at Heidenheim Numeric Eindhoven. And in parallel, he still does a lot of small consultancy and small jobs. And also he's embedded software engineer at Coaching Vision, which really is a humble way of describing what he really does and he has been part of that company, creating a product from zero, from a prototype in his home, all the way to mass production in China, something that we talk about in the podcast. Martin is for sure one of the smartest people I ever had the privilege to work and know. And this is a really fun conversation and, you know, full disclaimer, Ma, uh, disclaimer, sorry. Uh, Martin and I go way back since we were 13 years old. We lived together during university. We started a company together. He was the best man in my wedding. So, yeah. So, if at some point the conversation seems really informal, uh, that's why. <laughs> we talked a bit, a bit about his background, the transitioning from mechatronics to be a software engineer in a big company, work rules and how they apply to work in life in general, actually. Writing code, professional and not uh, in product development and other topics. We still, even though it's a one hour, almost one hour and a half conversation, we still managed to barely scratch the surface of many topics that we wanted to talk about, such as AI, uh, automation paradox and others, but that will be for another conversation. Hopefully, with things getting better in uh, for COVID, uh, this could be live. So let's see how that goes. But that's it for now. Hope you guys enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. And now I bring you Martin Blader. Now we know. Now we're live. Martin, thank you for being here. Thanks for inviting me, man. This is going to be interesting. Uh, I'm excited. This is so, uh, this is so awkward. <laughs> no, no, I actually, I it reminds me a bit of the podcast of Sam Harris with his wife. Have you ever watched that once? I was about to say that. <laughs> so, for people listening, that's exactly why Martin is my best friend. I was about to say that. Like that, this is why it's kind of awkward. First yeah, of all, we're not, we're not speaking our first language. Second. We just like, are we recording this? Like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. every now and then. 
<laughs> exactly. And I mean, they they started they start the conversation and she complains immediately that the thing is bizarre and awkward and it, this is identical here. But I mean, it's going to be fun. So well, let's kick it. All right. Off we go. Well, we we leave the things that can get us that can get us fired or in jail for later. And here we keep like the at least what is going live. So okay, let's get started. For those who don't know you, how you end up who you are. Oh. Doing mechatronics in Brazil and then pulling around with 3D printing and bio hands and do your own stuff. I don't know how you define where you are right now and how you end right. up there. Right. All right. So let's try to keep it short and sort of to the point, uh, not to bore everybody. But the point is, studied I studied control and automation, I think, some started some 10 years ago, Jesus Christ, and um, did some robotics while I was in uni, ended up sort of like converging more in direction of electronics and sort of embedded stuff. Um, once I graduated, I mean, to graduate, I, I worked for some time on like a prosthetic prototype. Uh, I was round around the time, this was 2015, when there was certain hype around 3D printed prosthetics, and there were some really cool projects coming out. So I sat down to actually go deeper into the topic and prototype a bit and 3D print stuff was brought around the time that I started getting involved with 3D printing too, which is a pretty cool area in and of itself. Then once I graduated, then the thing happened that happened to a lot of people in our circle, which is the question, now what? Now um, what? Because, <laughs> and this is something we'll probably touch upon later, but there is this sort of bias, uh, especially in countries like Brazil, that prepare people to a very like, academic future without actually having a market to absorb that skill set, right? And yeah. so you end up... In, you we end up... have an extra, an extra layer to like, oh my god, I'm 24. 24, and I don't have a Nobel Prize. What I'm doing with my life? Exactly. At this point, exactly. I thought it would be a famous scientist. Exactly. And that didn't happen. Exactly. So there are two, exactly, there are two things there. One, which is uh, being sort of dropped into a market that doesn't necessarily absorb the thing you studied for. So there's a misalignment between what you actually are trained to do and what people actually want you to do. And second, depending on which bubble you sort of came from, you have this very high expectation what your life should look like at any given point, which you have to first dismantle to be a bit more realistic. So it was a bit of a combination of those elements. And then what happened is I sort of started freelancing, which is a trap a lot of people fall into, apparently. <laughs> but it was pretty nice because we, it happened. To we started a company. Correct. Absolutely correct. <laughs> we need to talk about that. that we started a company. <laughs> that was around that point in time. For those hearing. Clearly, we're not millionaire out of that. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, but it, it, it did work out really well, in particular for you. It so did. That's I mean, the main goal was to learn. We both learned, and off we went. So, yeah, for me, it was successful. Yeah. But anyway, sorry, keep going. No, no. <laughs> and, and then basically, what happened is that along in that period of time, I worked on a few projects like that I sort of managed by myself, in which I had to deal with customers and actually implementation of hardware and firmware. I I worked some time on like an industrial like um, data collection board. Then later on with um, some health devices like for spinal curvature measurement. And then later on still with like a temperature data logger. And it, those were getting progressively more complicated. 
and I started like getting sucked into a bit of like product design, but also like software because well, software is everywhere, and I think we're going to hinge on that anyways. And exactly because I got sucked into software at some point, I don't know, LinkedIn happened, I guess, and I was offered like a position here where I am in the Netherlands, and I just moved and here I am sort of doing software yeah. for CNC machines right now. Well, you're being extremely, extremely humble for everything you just said. So let me correct that. Like the 3D prosthetics was actually pretty impressive for a undergraduate level. And, uh, in correcting to what you just said that LinkedIn kind of happened, well, you were really ready at that point. And remembering what happened is actually you were also, it's not like you were starving. It's, it was more like a career move. Like, okay, I've been doing this stuff on my own for a while. I wonder if I'm living in a bubble or if I'm doing it actually exists and it makes sense. <laughs> yes. Would I fit? Because, uh, yeah, it's interesting because I had that same feeling. We've been connected for a long time. So yeah, it's, I think it's a, a little bit too humble to just say that you just happened to be something popped up on LinkedIn and you went like, it's not only that. And it just, and I guess worked out. First of all, it was true. So what you, what you did know work out. So it's not a lie. It just mm -hmm. has been working out and, uh, yeah, so explain a little bit what is what is hiding high without going into details. Of course, they're gonna mm -hmm. get you fired for <laughs> violating your NDA. But yeah, uh, yeah. what does hiding high does? I think it ends up being a pretty niche company for people outside the cam world. So uh, yeah. maybe define a little bit what they do and how they do. Um, so yeah, before I reply exactly to that one point, I think we can return to the thing you mentioned about feeling prepared and wanting to test out your knowledge and your experiences in the real world. I think that's a good point. So I just want to plant a flag there that you can return later. But Heidenheim, so the current, the company I'm currently on. Um, so if you're dealing with CNC machines, so what's a CNC machine is basically a big metal cutter, not necessarily it can do many things, but in our case, it's just a big box that cuts metal. Uh, you give it a program and it turns out a piece or a part that is milled to specification or cut to specification. Well, 3D printers are also CNC machines. So just a con numerically controlled machine, computer controlled machine. Gosh, I and, talk about this. Sure. Yeah, yeah right. And so, yeah, of course it is. Yeah. <laughs> and basically what happens is that companies that, um, build CNC machines, they need, well, parts for it and software for it and they might do it in-house. Uh, or they might buy it from other companies, which are their suppliers. And this is the case of Heidenheim. So Heidenheim basically provides, um, linear actuators, rotary actuators, encoders of all sorts. And they started with that. And at some point they looked at their inventory, I suppose, and they're like, well, we have everything. We might as well just do the software too. And they have been working in their own controllers, uh, I think for the last 30 years or plus. And, um, so I'm basically working with their controller uh, stack, uh, more on the, the front end, so to speak. So there are Let me just unpack that a little bit. So let's say I do have like a subtractive, because now that's how we call it, mm -hmm. subtractive machine that we call five axis. So basically mm -hmm. you do have motors that control your base in mm -hmm. two dimensions and you have where the cutter is in another three dimensions. Mm -hmm. So basically is the controlling system that control where these things are spatially. Correct. So basically you will have a program. So you go on your 3D modeling package and you design something fancy. I don't know, like a turbine or something. And, and you need, like you have a certain geometry, right? And you want to basically bring a cutter of some sort 
and pass it along the boundaries of that geometry so that you can actually carve it out of metal. So you take that thing from a CAD, some computer-aided design, into like the camps and computer-aided machining, uh, or manufacturing in that case, and it will actually you'll then create instructions on how to actually create those surfaces in the machine. And those instructions essentially define some points in space, and then a controller in the target machine actually needs to understand how to take the geometry of the machine you're trying to do that into and move it in such a way that the cutter actually arrives at those positions. And you're going to guess there too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, um, and also not only that, but there, uh, there's a lot of smart that goes, like intelligence that goes into those things because it's not only just moving the cutter to a particular position, but you want to make sure that it looks ahead what points are coming so that you can actually interpolate certain velocity profiles and jerk profiles that make sense. Um, everything that you do it will influence surface finish, will influence how the actual accuracy and precision of the part looks like. So there's a lot of intelligence that goes in there, and uh, yeah, it's a thing that the company has been doing for quite some time. And there are others in the markets. I mean, but ours is better. Just kidding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and also something that I only realized about it after seeing you doing it, mainly with your 3D printers, is the fact that. After you know that, it's obvious, but in beforehand, I never thought about this, that the machine doesn't know where the part is. So a big thing is actually calibrating, like, yes. okay, here the metal starts. That's yes. where, like, just because you put a piece of metal inside a, inside a, a, a CNC machine, the, the machine doesn't know what is that. So it needs to see, okay, here's where starts metal, and this is nothing. Otherwise, the machine might be just doing yes. A, Cutting a perfect part, but it's actually not hitting anything. Correct. Yeah. Thirty centimeters yeah. of where the actual metal is. It, precisely. So there is. So if you ever worked with off-the-shelf three D printers, they are pretty dumb in the sense that like they're cheap as it gets, meaning they are, work in an open loop system. They'll just tell a motor, I don't know, spin twenty times. I hope it'll be in the right spot by then, and that's it. Mm -hmm. So if you go to a regular three D printer and you just hold it. It will, while it's printing, it's just going to be messed up for the rest of the print. Whereas mm -hmm. a higher end, uh, CNC machines, uh, like the ones I work with, they have a lot of feedback built in their system. So if something happens, like the cutter engages metal, but I don't know, the cutter breaks or something like that, it might detect that. But yes, you need to first provide where the metal starts. Otherwise, it might just go completely off the rails. And there are many videos on YouTube of machines going, machines going off the rails. And it's great. It's like it's very scary sometimes, but it's great content. If you have nothing to do, check it out. It's fun. Absolutely, well, yeah. And uh, well, I guess we started too early on that. I, I'm, I'm actually. Let's just circle back a little bit on what we talked about and the thing about testing stuff in the in real world. And it's kind of funny that you had that feeling because I think you had one of the most real words, real world experience as you can get. That is participating and getting started with a product out of an idea and then doing a prototype and then testing that and then actually going to China to you know work on the on yeah. the or to train the the, the 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 workers to actually do that in like by the thousands and validate that and test it. Maybe let's go there and let's say I, I think well the company is also part of this so you can say the name. You can you yeah. can do a little bit of self-promoting. And so how was that and how you guys end up doing that? How you 
get up, how you got up and hooked up on that in the first place. Um, yeah, so I was living in Brazil still at that point. I think it was end of 2016. And a friend of mine that I had been, that had studied with me, he actually contacted me and he said like, well, there is this investor I met and he wants to work on some sort of temperature measurement technology and he needs a guy that does firmware. And at that point I had, like I mentioned, worked on some products that had, well, embedded software, meaning there was software running on something that is not necessarily a computer, it's something smaller, right? Mm-hmm. And he wanted some guy that could do that. And I said, why not? Let's give it a shot. And it turned out that the idea was, well, at its very beginnings. And it's not anything groundbreaking. The idea was, well, we want to design a temperature sensor that is cheap, that stores a bunch of data points in some sort of PDF report, and you get it at the end of some delivery. So basically, there are many industries that require products to be temperature controlled during their shipment, right? So one good example, very timely, are vaccines. You cannot send a vaccine without it being temperature controlled. So there is legislation that requires you to get one of those artifacts, one of those sensors in the box so that the receiver can like plug it in a computer and say, this was capped in the right temperature and whatnot. And prove that, you know, if the medicine or whatever was required to be under minus 10 Celsius, it was actually under minus 10 Celsius from the factory all the way to the final user and never was above that. So you have like a, approved there just here it is like this is this is the temperature across time and that's how it is correct and then you get like a neat graph and even if it goes above the specified temperature you can do some calculations on how the degradation of the product looks like all that sort of stuff so we the investor had a good point i mean back in the day he just looked into what existed in the market and stuff was I was like yeah, what it was what it was about to happen <laughs> but yeah exactly oh my god <laughs> if only yeah but at the time it was actually not that bad i mean i don't want to say that it was a good business investment only because of that but anyway um <laughs> what then we just looked at what existed and we said like okay i guess we can do this cheaper right that was the the idea and this thing in general, just to, to give the spoiler, right? It was for me one of the things that one of the experiences that technically the most thought stuff to me in terms of how big the distance is between an idea and actually turning that idea into something that is usable, right? And then think this is refers back to what I had said about university in the sense that in an academic sort of upbringing, you get this this vibe for prototyping and for testing ideas out. And in an academic sense, if an idea is validated in sort of like, okay, the prototype works, the equations check out, then that's the end of it. But if you're really dealing with real world products, then the distance between validating an idea and bringing something polished to a consumer that they can actually use without having to know quantum mechanics and stuff is a long path, right? It's a long distance. So that was what was happening. So basically at the beginning, we were talking to the, to the investor and we were very excited, like, okay, this is easy. I think we validated like the ground components in the span of like a month. Mm-hmm. And then what happened is that, well, it started free firing. Like he started contacting people like, let's do this, let's do this. We will have this by the end of whatever many months. And this is the silliest idea that you can probably do, right? And then um, what ended up, well, what happened is that the product indeed got developed. And I think the biggest learning experience there was, well, for two. One you already alluded to, which was 
manufacturing, and you can stop me at any point. Otherwise, I'll be, I'll go in a ginormous tangent yeah. here. Don't, but don't 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 mind me if I'm taking notes, just because you know my brain is just gonna yeah. be bad. Just like, that's a great <laughs> point about this, but I forgot about it. So I so every now and then I'm just gonna take a couple. Notes. No, don't worry, yeah, don't worry. Please. And then there there were two big learning things in that in that whole story. One, the first was, like I alluded before, manufacturing something, right? So if you do a one-off nowadays, you see a lot of stuff like Arduino's, and you see a lot of like prototyping kits, and those are great because they stimulate people to actually go and try their ideas. But yeah. if you want to manufacture something, then you and have to well, actually 3D printing is actually cheap, like with yeah. an Arduino. In a 3D printer, gosh, there's like infinite stuff that yeah. you could do nowadays. It's 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 really cool. It's really really cool. But correct, yeah, as you said, there is a a big difference. Precisely because then you can and we did exactly that. We like prototype the thing very quickly. But then, okay, now I have a 3D printed case and a sort of like breadboard assembly, like with some jumper wires connecting some components. How do I bring this into market, right? And then you start looking and it starts expanding. So first, what components am I going to get? What is the unit price per thousands? Uh, what is the supplier availability in Eastern Asia? Uh, how, uh, which kind of supplier can I get and what kind of deals can I get? Can I get three components from different suppliers? Can I eventually change brands so that like two of them will fall under the same guy so I can get a bulk discount? And you start thinking then in, on the penny level, right? That's the first thing that happens. Because that was the idea, also to get a cheap thing out. Then you cannot 3D print en masse, right? You need to do something that is cheap. And so you do injection molding. But then injection molding, yeah. correct. Injection molding for anyone that already did it, it's an art in and of itself. So you need to hire some people and you need to be in contact in the team with the team that does that and give them certain dimensions and tolerances and discuss the, what the casing needs to do. But the casing, the shape of the, the, the injection molded case, then also ties into packaging, right? Because you want to have potentially a label on your product. So what is the label going to look like? And how is it going to wrap around the product? And how is that going to interfere with the packaging size and the packaging costs and whatever? And then if you look at then the electronics again, well, you have a circuit board, right? So will the circuit board have components on both sides? How many layers will it have? Uh, because all of that influences cost, but it also influences all sorts of technical decisions that you have to take before. And then once all of that is, is, is set and sort of defined, then while well, our product had software that you had to pass onto it, and it had to go like a through a suite of tests during manufacturing to ensure it was working right. So I needed to design at some point like a testing jig, right? So there was this equipment that you put the product in, you press a button, and it just tells you green, it's good, red, it's bad, but it bunch of stuff happens in there and at that in itself is a product because if you think about it the customers for those things they are the workers at the factory right and those guys i mean we didn't get a production line for ourselves we were basically one so in the shenzhen area in south of china there are many factories that offer assembly services so they will do your project for say a week they'll work on your thing and they will do they'll insanely efficient they'll churn out like thousands of the thing then they will sort of disassemble that assembly line or set it up for something else and do something else and so they don't care about your project in detail right they want something that just works and so like you exactly. mentioned you exactly tell the worker to do press this if this happens do that if exactly else. 
do that. And the more complicated the chain of events gets, the worse it is. So you really want the canonical sort of process. Right? And so as you mentioned, at some point, I actually, at the end of 2017, so this was like one and a, over one and a half year in the making, um, I actually went to, to Shenzhen um, to get the thing into production. And so I took the jig with me. Like it was, this is an experience I love. So for anyone that is into electronics, China, they, they were really something else. Like the, the level at which they work, China, <laughs> orange man. <laughs> so for anyone that's into electronics, they work at a different level. I remember taking this little prototype 3D printed jig, which is basically a bed of nails, right? You put your circuit board on top, it makes electric contact to certain points, test points, and that's it. So I took that to them and I told them, hey guys, I have schematics for this. So if you want, they can just provide you the schematics because I wanted them to make like a more robust, like milled version of that thing. And the guy said like, nah, no need. He just tipped it over, took one photo of the bottom and vanished. Like 12 hours later, he had an exact replica of the thing with all the wiring correct. It's just, it's crazy. Like it's really crazy. So like I just, uh, let's not talk about the social impacts behind that. <laughs> no, there's no need for that. But it was very impressive and they were incredibly efficient. It was like really cool to work with them and also, a bit of like a cultural, uh, interesting cultural interaction, right? And, hmm. and how you deal with the factory workers in that context, what are their expectations and, and so on and so forth. So that was one of the large learnings, how to take an idea and make it manufacturable. And the other is how to take an idea and bring it to public. Because here's the thing, people are not dumb. They just don't care about your product. They care about what they want to do with it, right? So if you give them like a thick manual to read, they won't, right? I mean, in the software world, there is the RTFM, right? Read the F in manual, but people will not. And if your thing is intuitive to use, you will save a lot of time in support later on. And you work I mean, in Literally, it is a career nowadays, like user experience design or user experience. Correct. Like It is a career in itself. Is definitely for that reason. In theory, everybody's just like, I'm buying the software. I'm spending the next three weeks just learning how to use it. There is, there would be no need for that. And we all going to be, you know, controlling, uh, DOS commands on the, on the, on the, on the, on, the, on your computer. But that's not the case. Like we, and that's just human nature. It's just yeah. like, and if you don't do that, even if your product is superior, I'm going to go to someone else and pay a little bit extra just for the convenience of not having to learn. Correct. And this is, I think that, I mean, this is sort of like the inflation of the times, right? Because if you were in the 80s and you had to, like you mentioned, run some Fortran common line application to compute you some sort of curve or simulate something for you, it was amazing because it didn't have to do the calculations by hand. So the fact that you had to type in some things in the prompt is fine. And it could but, reproduce, it could go back change one card instead of multiplying by three or multiplying by seven, but everything yeah. else is the same. So that's like, you don't, you don't have a person that needs to redo the whole whiteboard and just like, correct. There yeah. it goes. My, uh, my Apollo 11 calculations. I need to, exactly. I need to start, <laughs> I need to start again because I forgot to, it was the minus <laughs> one, not a plus one. Exactly. But then what happens is the generation that had to go through that hardship is, was slowly like substituted by people that grew into that convenience right 
And nowadays, uh, well, then you have softwares that are common line. And at some point, the guy puts a fancy interface in front of you. And instead of memorizing commands, you just have to click some buttons. And that's awesome. And then the next generation comes around and says, why do I have to actually read the entire manual? I mean, I just want to do a gesture. And I want like the model to pop up as I sort of envision it. Right? Mm -hmm. There's a limit to that, of course. But you can't optimize interaction. And this is what you mentioned the UX dude is doing. So. <laughs> Cool. That's really cool. <laughs> cool. Yeah. And uh, and how that ends up? Well, like I said, end up the you know from the assembly line. You live in China now. There is assembly line producing. Right. I guess the initial the initial batch was about ten thousand, twenty thousand. It was no. It was it was smaller. I think we had the first batch was like five thousand, and we're doing like five thousand batches, sort of like on demand, um, because there there's a even the next layer to that, because the user experience stuff ended up working out okay, right? There was a lot of interaction with customers and people like, oh, I want a feature to do that and I want a feature to do the other thing, and you sort of bring those in. And since we were a small company, you still have sort of that advantage of being fast in your iteration cycle. So it turned out to be a thing that the feedback was positive on. But it, since it's something that deals with medical products, potentially, then there is a regulation and you have to train your workers to use it, right? So if your product has literally one button, which is the case of ours, um, there's still training to be given because there needs to be a checklist somewhere that people were trained to use it. So this is the other thing that sort of for me became very concrete with that experience. Again, alluding, university times, you're prototyping, nothing matters, right? If it blinks, if you have you know to how use you know, right. You you can implement whole quantum mechanics in an Excel spreadsheet that you know how to use. <laughs> exactly. But another thing is an Excel spreadsheet that thousands of people can use without asking you how to run them. Exactly. And then what ends up, ends up happening is that you don't pay attention, but any decision you, ha you make in the beginning or during development, a technical development of a project, ends up cascading into a lot of other layers, right? So people talk a lot about technical debt, right? So you, you just write a beta software or you prepare a product and you just release it as is. And nobody can use that thing because of technical debt. You need to prepare documentation, you need to prepare manuals, you need to prepare support for that thing, right? Otherwise, you're in debt with all potential users of that thing. But that means that if you back there, cut some corners and you decided that ah, I'm not going to implement this feature. If the user needs it, then I need to add an extra flag, a pop-up, a thing. You need to document all that, right? So there is a, a strong correlation between all decisions you make in every step of the way. And I think this is something that I don't know if you can actually pick up and I by no means have mastered it, but I have been like blasted on the face with it quite extensively. Mm -hmm. So you start getting sort of the feel that Anything you decide now on a project will potentially bite you in the ass later. So. Yeah, yeah, and that's that's a problem with software. Most users don't know what's going on behind it, so it's just like last version that was working, and now it's not working. It's yeah. like, well, there's so many layers of complexity behind that feature that maybe were not scalable, or maybe worked in 60% of the cases, but you have some users that do the other 40% and then breaks everything else, and etc. So it's a so tricky. Before we go into that, the actual you know professionalism of writing mm -hmm. software, there was one little hook that I wanted to give there. I think you didn't have that much in this transition from university to professional work, but I had a lot. Is that and that's something you mentioned about the difference 
is the getting in and that's something very common in academia as you said is to fall in love with a technology or fall mm -hmm. in love with the solution even though that might not be the solution for a problem you just like i wanted to design a helium turbine mm -hmm. i don't know where to use it but i just find that's cool and i think i'm gonna do a helium turbine company because <laughs> i just think that's freaking yeah. awesome yeah. Well, it is awesome and maybe if you're doing i don't know your phd on that might be a you know a very successful one but as you said for the final user people rely on does it produce energy does the software does what i want to is it solving a problem and what is behind that how you're solving the problem it really doesn't matter it really doesn't and that's i think it's really hard for engineers to understand that because we you know in, inevitably you're like you know through the years you just get like oh this different technology and this different that and this different mm -hmm. no one actually told you that it doesn't matter those are like different toolbox that you could use to solve a problem but in the end when you go to a problem you should not come like with a screwdriver with a like your car is broken you just pop up with a screwdriver like i'm gonna solve it. <laughs> but my screwdriver is not solving the problem of the leak yes like, it doesn't matter like yes. it's just another tool that i need to use and i I've, you know, I've been guilty of that a, a lot. It's just like I want to use turbo machinery. I love that. It's I need to use that to solve something. You know. Yeah, I, think, I mean that, that has its yeah. own problems and solutions. Like you can try to find a solution that fits that thing, but if you're trying to develop a product like you did, no, you need to be a hundred percent agnostic of the solution, and then you you just face the problem. And from the problem, just like, how do I solve that? And then you go to solve That makes a lot of sense. And this is indeed a thing we see a lot. But I think there are two factors to this. Like one is, of course, you might, might just be very invested in a particular technology or a particular thing. And you see that in software a lot, right? People will say like, oh, language X is the better. Framework Y is fantastic. And they try to shoehorn it into something that is not necessarily a fit problem for it. Mm. Uh, but also there is a, a counterpart to that, which is if you are, um, you have been a long time in a certain area, right? So like if you deal, you dealt a lot with turbo machinery, for example, there is a bias in, in sort of modeling the problem around the domain, you know, best. Right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. because there, there is a bit of like you're fluent in a certain tool set and you of course gravitate towards that tool set because you can think faster in that in that framework in that frame of mind so although i'm not necessarily a fantastic like control engineer if i see like a, a little robot a little application the first thing i'm thinking about is okay what's the model what are the parameters how would a controller be working into this thing how are they stabilizing x or y and z because it's just the thing you're sort of were trained to think over the years. And of course, the more you're in different areas, the more you shine different like spotlights from those areas onto the problem. And you always end up seeing just a subset of it. That's because that's exactly why the thing you mentioned is so important. You have to sort of like stop, take a step back and sort of try to see the bigger picture. But it's really hard because it, I mean, it's the old adage. If you don't, you can't really think outside of the box if you don't know what the box is. There is a box. Yeah, yeah, there is a box to begin with. And yeah. also because yeah. you 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 can only really solve a problem that you can decompose. Huh? 
And you cannot decompose a, a, a problem into areas you don't have any expertise in. So yeah. um, it's it's a bit complicated. And I, I take that, for example, for software, right? People, if you come from, from a side that you're writing, I don't know, C, C++, JavaScript, that sort of stuff, um, you'll be thinking about one kind of paradigm. And you think that's all there is, right? But then you, if you start using other types of languages like Haskell and that sort of stuff, then the way you think about the problem is completely different. So there's mm -hmm. also like that way of, of the, the tools you use, they also might influence, unfortunately, a bit how you approach the thing. So I, I guess the best solution is try to recognize there is a box. You have a bias and try to familiarize itself with as many tools as possible because then I think it reduces the chance of doing precisely what you mentioned. How funny is that? that when, why are you saying that? I'm just thinking like, yeah, you're talking about programming, but it is the same with human beings. You know, sometimes you are stuck in a problem, personal problem, and you just don't know how to decompose because you don't know there is a box. And also, the, the, you know, the, by the language you speak, it kind of bias you into a way of looking at a problem, but mm. maybe just because you don't have a way of describing that, you don't actually know you have that issue. But yeah, that's a, that's yeah, a but that's actually that's a really good point, and and this is something I was uh, thinking about the other day. Is like I have some notes written everywhere, and one of the notes I, I put up was so if you take like uh, a language, a uh, programming language like like. C++, right? You have like concept as object orientation and it's what they call imperative language where you're just like, you write what is going to, to, to happen. But you have languages like, I don't know, SQL or SQL, depending on how you want to pronounce it, which are declarative in a certain sense, or functional languages like Haskell that I mentioned. And those, they will present, like I mentioned before, different ways of formulating a problem. You really think differently on how you want to express a problem and thus how you express a solution, right? Mm -hmm. And what ends up happening, like if you come from C++ into Haskell, then the first thing you have to do is like fit that syntax into your brain, which at some point will make you make the, the, the mental model click in your head of what is actually happening. And at that point, you extract the mental model, so the concept of functional programming, you decouple it from the language, right? And this is the same thing with languages that we speak so it's like latin languages they don't have declinations as you have in germanic languages or slavic languages and once you learn one of those then you actually pick that concept out of the language and it becomes a, this abstract concept that you can see and identify in other problem domains and this also works for words right so like you have a word that describes a certain idea in one language you don't have it in another the first time they present you with that new word you go like what the hell and then, and then at some point you you learn to identify that thing as this concept. And then when you're speaking your own language, you go like, ah, damn, I needed that word that doesn't exist. I would say that. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Well, it's, it's our problem, like not framing that I want to say is like, I remember clearly back in grad school, seeing like the concept of like polar coordinates and mm -hmm. thinking, why would I? It's so easy. Like X is X, Z and Y is just. Mm -hmm simple like we've been seeing that my whole time and here i am working to a machinery with if you use polar coordinates is it's much simpler to describe everything else because everything yeah. has axis of rotation and in describing everything is much simpler so the way of solving the problems is simpler and it just it just simplifies just by the way you ah how to say that i don't know how to say that how you yeah, think your think coordinate system it's, yeah i mean framing framing, no, framing i think would be a correct word of saying because you're basically like it's it Tends being like you're changing your coordinate system on how you represent the problem for yourself, yeah. right? So yeah, yeah. in that sense, 
it, it goes back to what you're saying. If you were like in this particular example, like dead set on using like Cartesian coordinates instead of polar, then it would just make your life harder for no actual reason. And this goes for all technologies that you were mentioning and for whatever sort of problems you're facing. And for life in general, actually. Hmm? If you have yeah, correct. like a new concept, they might just make your life super harder with no reason. If you just have, if you yeah. just basically are humble enough, like maybe there is a point of using that sometimes. That's yeah. good to know. Yeah. And this is, yeah, I mean, we're getting really philosophical, but the analogies, they really, they really cross the borders in that sense. I mean, there is a lot of, there is a lot of reframing techniques that you can use professionally that will work, uh, in a more subjective context. I think the advantage of work is like in particular, and this is something I like in working in a more technical area. There are right answers, right? Most of the time, which can ground you a lot. Uh, and then you can sort of test this hypothesis in a more like constrained environment instead of having to deal with <laughs> subjective discussions all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would say I, I would argue that for the personal life you also have that, but some it, it might take like forty years to realize like oh, yeah, this is the wrong <laughs> assumption back then. <laughs> true, 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 true. This is why it's good too. Like there, there was this one YouTuber, CGP Gray. And he has a really good quote. He says, if you want to be always right, you have to be prepared to change your mind, your mind constantly, which is a great quote. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, really good. Well, let's, let's switch topics, otherwise we're going to just keep going. <laughs> let's go to what we were originally talking, now going to Heidenheim and comparing. I guess it's a very good hook there because you went from... The whole process, doing that yourself, with there is a lot of value, to now doing the exact opposite, coming to a company, huge company, that now you're just like a gear in a huge machine that is already working, and you need to first of all like understand the whole mm -hmm. flow, and then start like following the flow, mm -hmm. and then only then getting to the point of actually like improving potentially, but yeah. it is a it is it is a funny process that I'm still elaborating. That is like, in order to improve, you need first to follow the rules. Otherwise, you don't know which rules you should be breaking. You know what yeah. I mean? So it is a funny process that like you need to learn sometimes like syntax or a, a way of documenting that is absolutely painful for you. It's just like I hate doing this. It's obvious that I'm doing X because of Y. Why do I need to write a report about? But then you go like three years later, just like how I did that again. Oh, yes. Yes. I wrote a report about this three years later. If anyone, yeah. even if I'm not here and anyone wants to know why I did that, here it is. But it, but at some point you need to know the process good enough to like this one. Now that I know this rule is worth breaking because this yes. doesn't make sense. Correct. Yeah, you need, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, this is precisely what happened to me and I think a lot of people that worked as a freelance and then got into a company or the other way around. Um, if you're controlling your own schedule, right, you can do whatever, you can sort of create your own rules, uh, but this also puts a lot of responsibility on you, right? And like we commented before, we were trying our luck out, so to speak, with stuff that we were trying in our careers. And for me, at some point, I was like, okay, am I going in the right direction or not? And once you get into larger corporation, right, uh, the company I'm in exists for literally a hundred years. So those guys have been doing something, I wouldn't say right, but not dramatically wrong, right? They're just staying afloat and selling their yeah, stuff. Just by uh, and, natural selection, they would not survive if they're not doing a correct. Correct. So what what happened there is 
So it's very, it's, there is this, this stereotype that younger people will barge into a company and want to change everything. And this is true because the first time you walk in and people like you start understanding what the boundaries are and you start uh, uh, seeing the rules and having to follow rules, there is this, this sort of wish of, of, to break things that you think are senseless. But the first thing you got is like you mentioned, you got to ask yourself, okay, there is a reason for this to be here, most likely, right? And then you need to first understand why this is the case. And the earlier you do this, the better it is for you because you just you will not get that stress. You'll try to absorb what is going on. You'll try to follow the procedures. And once you understand why they are there, then you might first accept that they exist or be convinced that they have to be there or be convinced that they cannot be reasonably changed in a short period of time or in the good scenario, identify something that you can indeed change, right? So this is the first thing. I mean, just people talk about teamwork and yeah, this is like self-explanatory. You'll have to work with other people. There is a whole lot of like socialization to, to be done there. But I think that like capacity of identifying what's the structure and why it is like it is, uh, this is one big thing. And also, I Let's mean, just break down a little yeah. bit there, break down. I'm <laughs> just make a comment there. It's just there is a, you know, Stephen Fry? The yeah. guy who has a beautiful voice and I yeah. was a great point about something. It just fits so perfectly what you just describing. He, I think it was in the podcast I heard him describing about like a fence paradox. Like you get to a, a native land and it's beautiful, but there is a, a wall door, a, a wall there or a mm -hmm. fence and you're just like, this is ugly. And you're just like automatically like take it out because it doesn't make sense for you. Why would mm -hmm. you? And then later on, you're trying to start your own plantation or your house, but the bear comes over and mm -hmm. destroys everything. And you don't understand why could I potentially do to avoid the animals to get here. Mm -hmm. So that's just the problem when you just get and like destroy an, an structure that you don't fully understand. Is yes. that maybe you don't like it, but very likely is there for a reason. And yeah. if you just destroy it without even understanding why it's there in the first place, you you don't you're gonna face the same problems and you're gonna have to either reinvent the wheel or just completely completely perish because right. you didn't understand why the fence was there in the first place. Yes, this is a bit of my personal gripe with uh, the current sort of like disruption vibe <laughs> that companies will yeah 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 that they will sort of like try to put forth because for me this is a classic example of not even knowing the box and, and, and advocating for thinking outside of it. Right? Um, there is sort of, for me at least, this very like meditative process of just understanding what are the boundary conditions to then break out of them, right? Because it's complicated. Like in the case of the, the company, I mean, they have technologies that have been on the field, like software stacks that have been on the field for over 20 years. And a customer that paid like a lot of money back in the day for a machine, they don't care about the updates necessarily, right? It's, if it's providing them with money, if it's cutting metal, if it's doing the project, then it's fine. And so you will have to actually support that thing, right? So there is a lot of stuff that could be improved, but all those things, they are tied to customers, to historical reasons, to decisions that were made in the past. And you identify them, you know that they're there, you know that you can tackle them at some point and you keep them in your radar, but you don't just flip the entire thing upside down because at the end of the day, you're not there to fulfill your own grandiose wishes of changing everything, you're there to supply a customer with something that works. And understanding mm -hmm. what you are doing in, in any given context, like what's your goal, uh, and 
making sure that this goal is not somehow self-fulfillment, right? You don't want to fulfill your own expectations or your own ego with that. Then you you put your efforts in the right spot. And I think like if you want to uproot something and completely change it, that's absolutely fine as long as you know why you're doing it and you know what is going to take its place. Because destroying an existing structure is worthless if you're not providing something new to take its place that actually delivers more value. Right? Yeah, I was about saying if if it's not better, otherwise you just keep the same structure actually. Correct. That's, well, again, it's very easy to take a detour to a personal life and politics. Uh, now it's just like, yes, there is a lot of things wrong, but do you have a better solution? Yes. Otherwise, yeah, yeah. and there is no it, point. Correct. And, and this is precisely it. I mean, of course, the, the analogy just it goes political immediately. But you see this a lot of in, in political discourse nowadays, and you will see that same conversation also in, in, in the management and, and the company level, people just identifying the pain points. And yes, sure, there are pain points in a lot of things, but the pain points, they're usually... It's, it's hard to imagine like the what-if scenario if you had another system, what would be the pain points then? Because every time you see pain points and you even provide some sort of solution for them, what's in your blind spot is the new pain points that would arise which are new solution right so i'm not trying to be conformist this is a conversation i had with a friend the other day she was in this also fairly not large company but middle sized ish also like a software company that existed for the last 10 years or so but they were established enough and uh she identified a bunch of issues right and, and the structure and how the product was being designed and this is something i would like to get into like they were literally telling her just do some dashboards it doesn't matter just like put something out as quickly as you can because we need to compete with the other guy blah 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 and she was like just i don't know just like devastated with the whole situation because she had just come from university and she was still in that vibe of like i want to do i want to like implement change and that request of just implement this thing bad as it is it doesn't matter it was really like disheartening for her but then at some point we were talking like what is the, the the line between being idealistic and being conformist right there's at some point where you have to live in a, in a situation where you're not battling everyone and potentially just just seeing dragons and windmills that aren't even there right yeah, or sure. at the point where you just it? let the ball drop entirely i think was it picasso I know there is a painter, a famous painter that said the hardest part about a, a paint is to stop. Otherwise, you're going to ruin it if you yes. keep doing it. Yes. You need yes. to let that ego just like, I'm just going to fix a little bit more because yes. at some point you're going to screw it. Yeah. There was... And you need to let it go. And you need to let it go. At some point, good enough is good enough. Even you can ask for like again you can ask picasso and i'm sure he would look at one of his old paintings and like i could probably improve that a little bit and always you're gonna see some little flaws in the stuff that you yourself did it but you need to let it go at some point and when you go to like an industrial environment that is just like the norm like of course there is hundreds of ways to be better but if if that was the case you would be writing a thesis about it you're not going to be delivering a product yeah i mean this is again where where academia and and industry sort of collide, right? And this is better in some countries that allow interaction between the two. But Brazil Absolutely. is not particularly strong on that area. Yeah. So and what you also, I wouldn't say even some countries develop a little bit more. It, 
more and more I realize like it is a company mindset that realizes and again depends on the problem it is worth it and some problems are not worth it but that it is worth it to spend a lot of time in research because that pays off later on yeah and uh yeah but the point the point i was i was making there is exactly because you will have like i mentioned you want to sort of promote change right and you want to have a lot of ideas and identify a bunch of stuff but you have to drop the ball at some point because, or stop it at some point, otherwise it will be just writing thesis on something. And this is precisely what happens. We will see a lot of I don't know, products, uh, engineers or students and like this process management area and stuff going to companies and analyzing their stuff and writing thesis about what could be improved and nothing, none of those things get actually implemented for the most part, right? It's just like somebody does their internship there, they identify 15 different things, they write a thesis about it and it never gets implemented because Yes, the problems are there, but actually converting or solving them is not that simple. It never really is. So, yeah. But one thing I want to, I would like, we mentioned before the conversation and that I would like to at some point pivot to is, uh, software being written in a professional context, right? Because this is a gripe I think that you and me had. Uh, and I think it would be interesting because you had like some close experiences with software quality. Software. Yeah, just just comment a bit on that because like I'm actually curious what were your biggest issues. It's hard to say anything that don't break any NDA <laughs> that I've been signed <laughs> along my life. But uh, well, let's say that um, it's hard to be. Sometimes you realize you are. I guess well, and, well, let's start that. I guess uh, I'll just put the ball on your card again for mm. one thing that is engineers writing code like i am an engineer and i i am the first one to know that i'm not a developer can i code yes meaning i write a couple of lines of code for a problem that i have myself and i want to repeat that so i guess a more common name for that would be a macro so i i have a, a common set of stuff that i need that i saw very often or relatively often and i make it generic enough that I can, you know, between the boundaries that I know are changing, I can just like change those and it gives me the same answer, like a different answer every time, but mm. the process in between I can automate. So I'm, I'm proficient enough for that. And most engineers go to a point, if you're working research and you have a lot of iterations, you end up doing that. You realize, you know, very quickly, you might need a lot of knowledge to do the first time, but then, you know, by the third time, just like, okay, I'm always doing the same. Am I, you know, if I'm opening software X and then I export these numbers and then I go to software Y and then use that in those numbers and then I go to Excel spreadsheet. Well, I might as well just write a Python script that just calls this and it just mm -hmm. does that. And so I mm -hmm. just change A and, and get D. I don't need to know what is going on in mm -hmm. between because I'm, mm -hmm. I know it's reliable enough. That is not a code. That is not a professional code. So that's, that's what my boundary between like a, like a, someone that writes code and a developer is. And, uh, and let's say the problems that I have that now looking hindsight is basically some entire companies and softwares come from that mentality. So when you actually try, so when you go, so when you, that becomes more scalable and now instead of like one or two or three users, where the three users pretty much are writing the code, almost know the code 
themselves, it's one thing. But now when you go to like hundreds of users and they are going to an off case that doesn't work, it's hard to say to them that this is not a feature to implement. It's not something that I'm just going to add a feature that solves that problem. Is that my code doesn't know that problem is, exists. Mm -hmm. It's not like, oh, I did a, like a, a, a robust code with a <laughs> bunch of functions and I can like build that like a Lego. No, I did like a screwdriver and I <laughs> can only fix problems that has that same key. Otherwise, like, and you ask me, ah, can you just make an implementation that now does like Phillips yeah, yeah. instead of this other kind of screws? Like, no, you don't understand. Like, this is not, this was not made for this. Yeah. So that yeah. was my issue now looking hindsight. Hmm. When I was back then, I was just like, oh, there's so much we can do. And if you just do that and then, and then realize like, no, this is actually probably if you actually are looking for the long term and you, and you want to have, and again, even solving the problem. You need someone with a lot of vision to like, okay, I'm going to keep my, you know, if I have a team of 10, I'm going to keep seven developers just like in the mainstream, just like, okay, fix the today problems that pay the bills. But you need three, four that slowly are doing stuff that it doesn't matter for the final user, but mm -hmm. they are getting that mess and turning that into blocks. And those yeah. blocks are scalable. And those blocks are like things that you can use. And, uh, and again, I, I guess now in hindsight, I realize going back to your original question, I didn't, I, I didn't have problems of quality. I had problems of trying to make something scalable that was not. Yeah. 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 I think you, there's a lot of unpacking in this entire story because, uh, I think you start with the question or the premise of like engineers writing code. And this is a bit of a joke, but it is something that indeed happens. I mean, in our bubble of, students and friends from university, uh, at least in mine, the majority of people that graduated with me ended up in software jobs. And I think this is something that is all the more prevalent in countries that have perhaps a developing economy because software sure. is basically just fairy dust, right? You just write it and there are no, there's no cost associated with transporting it around. So it's easier to like build services around it. So the end not, of if you have like a technical background, like physics, mathematics, engineering, is relatively easy to gravitate to that because we're speaking the same language, like mathematical and logics and algorithms. Like it's, it's, it's kind of theory. It's easier to transition. You know, it's not like you're not going from like, you know, a technical career to public speaking, you know, out of, you know, it's, 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 it's there. Like it's kind of gravitating and it kind of makes sense just for like a pure market point of view. Just there is a boom of software and app develop development. So if you kind of know what to do there and you're just like, oh, maybe if I learn that language, I can find a job. Like, yeah, it, it pays the bill. So yeah, the, this is, it's true. It's indeed what happens, right? Because in university, if you're doing engineering or if you're doing physics or math, odds are you'll be dealing with software to solve your issues, right? To solve your problems, to implement some sort of, I don't know, lecture problem you need to do, deliver or something. But the, the situation is, of course, of course, more complicated because if you take an engineer, like code that is written for research purposes, right, is usually bad code. If you look in the sense of practices, like of good coding practices, if you look 
at, I don't know, I remember looking at code uh, from my supervisor back when I was in uni. He had written like crazy complicated, like non-linear controllers for like um, uh, drone simulations and drone stabilization. And the math behind it was consistent. It was good stuff, right? But the code was, oh my God, it was terrible. And because... It did matter. It is like yeah. I said. It's it's like a script. <laughs> I didn't know the drill, right? So it's he just wants to to sort of formalize a problem, and he wants to get automated results out of it. And there is a lot of um, sort of there is a bias towards that that you just think, oh, I can just write the solution for my problem, and this will be the code that goes into production. And this absolutely circles back to what I mentioned before. For a hardware product, is the same thing for software. There's a big, big distance between you bringing this sort of validated idea into a product form, which is exactly what you mentioned. I write a thing, it is my screwdriver for a particular problem, it does Phillips and Allen if you're lucky, right? And then some guy comes with, oh, I have an iPhone and it has this weird five-star screwdriver thing, can you do that? I can't, because you never thought about it, right? And so there are a few fronts in that, because if you come from like a computer science corner, then your training, at least in my experience, that's it's exactly in formalizing those first problems, right? So if you're dealing with a very concrete problem, like how can I make an algorithm be more efficient? How can I make a certain problem be represented in logical expressions? That's one thing. And the other is thinking about those larger scale concerns, right? What is the structure of my software going to be? How can I make this flexible? How can I add components to it? And of course, now more and more, there is even the project management side that comes to it. And this is, again, I think that I, an area that I think suffers a bit from the same disease of oversimplification that you see in software. Right? If I learn the language, is enough. And like if people go like, ah, if I just learn what Scrum means or extreme programming means, I just like get the terms and call a guy a product owner, call a guy a Scrum master, and that's fine. And, and we have yeah. sprints every two weeks, and ah, off we go. And it's done, and off we go. And this is not true. And every time you learn a domain well enough to do what we mentioned before, which is take the syntax, the instantiation of that domain, and from it extract the abstract ideas. When you do that, then you understand why there is a methodology, right? So like if you learn a programming language, that's one step. But extracting the concepts out of it is another step. If you learn the concept like what Scrum is and what product management is, sort of like on paper, and then it's like, eh. But once you understand what it is doing with the workflow, with the artifacts, with the value chain generation, that sort of stuff, then you see what's the point. And so there's always this sort of overarching architecture on things that exists for a reason and exists to solve a set of problems. But usually um, there is an oversimplification that happens. And I think it doesn't happen as much in more traditional industry segments, so you don't see that happening with like car designs, right? So cars, they have to work, right? So like if you have a car manufacturer and they're doing some sort of like, I don't know, car chassis or something, if something is done in a simplified or incorrect manner, it's visible. It's very easy to see, right? There are many tests and validations around. I think I, think, I, think I would disagree. I think that oh. happens there. It's just that the automotive industry is more mature. That could also be. That could also because, be. Because like we get like now we're probably getting like to a hundred years of having cars, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was normal for a car to break down and the owner 
to call the factory to just fix it or just get a new car or something like that. Mm -hmm. it, and slowly, those problems that, and that's why like this huge automotive conglomerates that exist nowadays, they literally have, they really went that way that we described before, having like whole research institutes that take care of stuff that the final user have zero idea, zero mm -hmm. idea. Like I'm driving my, you know, Volkswagen back in Brazil. You don't know about the controlling systems that are actually controlling mm -hmm. how the timing of the valves is, how much, you know, uh, gasoline is putting in each cycle. Blah, blah, blah. You have no idea of that. But if that was not thought out for a whole chain before you, that mm -hmm. did have an impact. So I think that was the case. I agree with you. Software is harder, but I also think like if you think about it, this industry is really new. Like yeah, we, we think it is, but if you think about it, we didn't have like an app company 30 years ago. It didn't exist. Yeah. Now you have most the big automotive companies that have been around pre second world war. That's, so it's just like. True. It, it, I, I think that did happen. I agree with you, but I think the difference is not as much that you cannot see because also in most hardware nowadays, we cannot see what's going on anymore. We don't know what's going wrong, but there is that feeling like this one is more reliable. This one's more economic, blah, blah, exactly because it's just growing in the maturation. Now, I do agree with you on another point that is that I think what happened to automotive industry was a little bit more organic just because the scale is it's much more expensive to build everything mm. it requires more hands and blah, blah blah now what's going with software is like 10 times worse because the growing pins not only is new but like it's expanding super fast and now we are building whole infrastructures that rely on unreliable software so imagine that yeah. We, yeah. you know imagine that we just discover how to do a railway 10 years ago and now the whole world depends on, or actually even better, ships. Yeah. How, for how, like we have, for t probably as long as we have humans, we might have something related to ships. And still, one ship gets stuck in one canal, and the whole world yeah. goes crazy. It's, yeah. you know, it just shows that sometimes you have some vulnerabilities that just clogs everything. And the problem is not the technology; is that we end up relying too much on something that is not reliable. And that I think is what, sorry, I went in a big tangent no, there just no. to the point that I think I agree with you, but maybe it's not just because the software is maybe because it's like too immature. It's too new. We, we're still figuring out what's going on. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You're actually, you, you get a good point because that, that argument of not being transparent is something that, that I was sort of trying to figure out, but I think you're, you're hitting the nail on the head indeed because there is the industries for automotive, for example, to stay an example, they are older and there's a lot of regulation around it, which is something that is also exists for time enough that they had time to adapt to it. And software, there are areas which are regulated, like aerospace stuff, and those bits of software are incredibly robust, right? And it's also tied to how many people can die if this goes wrong? And like cars, I mean, if you put someone, it's like a, a metal can that goes fast, right? If something goes bad, then the person dies. And there's a lot of pressure and to people, make that. And, and people used to die a lot because of yes, that. Yes, exactly. No, think about it, when we were kids, using a seatbelt was not common. And now it's just like mind-blowing that like, how would you not use it? Like, I, what kind of what kind of savage are you that you're not using, <laughs> a, yeah. you're not using the seatbelt? 
Yeah, and and this 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 is indeed a case. Like I think one of I think one of the extra issues with software in particular is because you you can't inspect what's in it, right? So for example, if you have a mechanical setup, then there is no distinction between sort of the source code and the actual product, right? So you can yeah, buy a car yeah. and you can open it up and you can look into it and you you can sort of inspect the quality of the parts if you know what you're looking at. It becomes mm. less and less the case nowadays with electronics and software because software is at play and software has exactly that issue, which is you see an, a, an interface or some sort of API, but you don't, unless the thing is open source, you don't know what's behind it and you cannot really evaluate the quality without well, you have to treat it as a black box, right? So there is a movement nowadays, of course, with open source stuff, um, because if you take what happened to Dieselgate from Volkswagen, right? Dieselgate is precisely what you get when you have closed source software. I mean, yeah. if you had just peeked into the, the source code, that would never have happened. And if there yeah. were companies shipping out cars that had a mechanical switch to put the, the, the engine in two modes, I mean, that wouldn't last a week in the market, right? Somebody would figure that out immediately. Um, so there are but that, nowadays... But that's yeah. interesting. I don't know if open source is the solution, to be honest. I think what you said, from my point of view, is to, again, going back to the automotive, is like, it doesn't matter how you use, how you design the chassis, we're going to do a, a crash test. And if the mannequin inside it dies, it does the best. So, and in theory, I know it's kind of too blind, but almost mm -hmm. that is by definition a blind test. It doesn't matter what's inside. We're going to come up with a set of tests that if you pass, we're going to assume is reliable. It doesn't matter what's inside the box. I, I understand your point, but I think there's a bit of the amount of use cases that you have with, with software, I, I mean, the attack surface is, is wider, right? So like yeah. the test surface is wider. So for example, if you take stuff like uh, we had in the last, I don't know, five years or so, pretty intense software bugs that had, that appear even in open source stuff, right? So what was the thing? Shellshock. I think there were two that were very, very famous that happened. Shellshock and Heartbleed, I guess. Exactly. Exactly. So Shellshock, so if you're under Linux and Mac OS, uh, then you have like the command line and the command line runs on some, some sort of bash variant, which is the, the terminal, the program that displays the terminal. And it turned out that it had like a really crazy simple way of running programs as a different user. So I could be Martin logged into my computer, but impersonate a different user and do stuff in another user's account, which is a, like a massive flaw. and if I'm, I might be actually wrong on the names, but Heartbleed, if I recall correctly, was a bug in one of the largest uh, and most used encryption libraries, OpenSSL, that uh, basically you could, uh, with the correct requests, actually get unencrypted information from other people that had used the server before you. And I remember that in the case of OpenSSL, if you ever programmed, you have like switch cases, right? You wrote switch and then case, break, case, break, case, break. And the guy had forgotten a break in a single line. And that caused that security bug that took, I think, 10 years to be found. Nobody actually knows how long the thing has been in the wild and if it was exploited or not, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. a bit of the issue is that to test something, you have to think, what will you test? 
And for a car, I think the use cases, they are much more constrained than for mm -hmm. a software application because there are so many variables. So it also becomes much harder to assess quality for it. Yeah, but I, I guess the problem maybe is naming there because what currently we call software will become, as you said, like aerospace software, consumer goods software, blah, blah. It's almost the same as saying like, oh, let's test engineering. Like it's uh, yeah. just too broad. So yeah. as you said, I think we, we're going to come up with test cases and, you know, blind tests for different cases. And maybe they'll start, like, they'll, at some point they'll start coming like, oh, we have aerospace that is the tighter one that we can have. And we, you know, for medical ones, we're going to use some stuff to use to aerospace and things like that. But yeah. again, and I, don't know, I, maybe it is just for me, my own bias, let's say, I cannot see you developing something and just leaving it in the wild for other people to see it if you actually want to make any money out of that. Like oh, we already seen works. works. We already seen we already seen so many stuff with the internet that's like that. And now we have their own problems with the internet being with because people think it's free, but it's not. It is gone. Mm -hmm. Someone's making money out of it. And the problem is you the, the the reason you're not paying for the internet is because you are the product. So that's what is going yeah, on. Yeah. Yeah. And how you solve that? Well, there there are two things, right? One thing about open source software is that for mission critical stuff, right? For stuff that is actually relevant. So I was watching a, a talk the other day on Ripple, which is one of the one of, one of the blockchain based currencies. Uh, Ripple, well, it's a blockchain technology, and there is the the crypto coin built on top of it. And Ripple is entirely open source, as are other crypto coins. And the advantage of that is you have a financial protocol, essentially, whose stack is completely open source, which means if there are vulnerabilities, there is interest in finding them. And having your code out there to be sort of evaluated by people is the fastest way to find them. And so people developing Ripple, they are very, and other cryptos for sure, but they're very aware of that. So they'll do their best to develop the best code they can. But if there is some sort of flaw, then somebody's going to identify it pretty freaking fast. It's out there. Mm -hmm. Right. So there is there is some some advantage because what ends up happening is that problems that are hidden, they still exist. It's just that they're hidden. And then you don't know who is exploiting them, uh, what are the what's the size of the consumer base that they're affecting and that sort of stuff. So for a few things, I think opening the and, and you see Linux. Linux is the biggest example of that like the linux is the backbone of the entire internet nowadays like everything you care about runs on that your phone runs on that the internet runs on that and this like the kernel of it is completely open source and what happens is that people will then go through it freely and identify issues and patch them and that sort of stuff and this is much better than any company can ever dream to do right um but of course then there is an issue of marketability right but and and I think the money you can make of this this of open source projects depends a lot on what you're doing. Companies that do have open source products, they will either make two tiers. So one is like you have the, the open source project, uh, and there is then the closed source variant or the variant that you can use yourself in closed source projects. So if you're doing libraries, right? If you're doing frameworks, then it's a very common thing. You give out the free thing, but you, if you want to use that in your own project and close the sources of your own project, then you have to pay for a license. 
and this is what they call the licensing model. So they have mm. licensing models that are what they call infectious, right? So there is there are open source licenses that require everything that your software touches or that is touched by that thing to also be open source. So it might not be in your best interest to do so. Of course, mm. you can not follow this, but then you're eligible to go to court, right? Yeah. So, but that brings us to the way you're describing. First of all, okay, you, you want me there. Okay, there is, it, it makes sense, but almost sounds like what you're saying. Incorrect or wrong is that possibly writing code to the future might be, we might start looking at it as an infrastructure problem, meaning we're not going to rely on a company to do that. It should be maybe a, like a, a greater good interest, meaning we might need international institutions and international foundations to actually like, okay, enough is enough. Now we have this international foundation. It has this kind of laws and this kind of rules that we need to follow. And we're going to write, we're going to rewrite the internet and it's going to be based on that. Anyone can enter the code, but here we have our, we, you know, these different countries are funding this incredibly smart people to keep going on this. And hopefully we can rely on future and something mm -hmm. reliable and not something that is a miracle that works. Well, I mean, I, at this point, I don't think people will rewrite the TCP IP stack. This is basically set on stone, I guess, or it would be very hard to change it because you're talking about billions of devices, a lot of which are not really updatable anymore. But the problem you touch on is a big one, big, big one. Like, Treating software as infrastructure is a correct thing. Like I'm not saying like the apps, like I'm not saying like Fruit Ninja or whatever games I'm talking. I'm really talking about like wider things. You see, like I mentioned, cryptocurrencies. They're still experimental, but the technology behind them might start getting used on lots of infrastructure-like products, right? So, for example, you might be talking about like health records, and you might be talking about not only like just financial transactions, but all all sorts of other transactions that you want to record. Yeah, and those I'm, things I'm might... that very soon, like clearly something that obviously doesn't work well is just how governments keep even track of the existing people. Like, mm -hmm. do they exist? Do they not? Like, have they paid their their um, their taxes or not? Mm -hmm. And currently, there is not really a reliable way of you know thinking that. And again, if you Think about it, and some governments start looking at that, like, okay, this is very key. That's something. Um, um, well, I'm pretty sure some places with tighter control, they are probably already working on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But the, the point is, like, those things would become infrastructure, and this the problem of having software as infrastructure, and then having some sort of, like I mentioned, greater good foundation or or structure taking care of it is a real problem. Because nowadays, what happens, for example, with the classic examples. Google and Facebook, right? Those guys, they are private companies, but they are de facto infrastructure, right? In the sense that there Absolutely is, right. they are, there is a lot of stuff that goes through those platforms that bases day to day life. Like if you take, like if you remove WhatsApp, you just shut down Brazil, basically, right? You shut down yeah. a lot of stuff, but you hitting something so good. That's so good. I, I saw a podcast. Who was there? Um, I think it's Tristan Harris, the guy mm -hmm. for the uh, social dilemma. Mm -hmm. I, I think he was in the Joe Rogan podcast and he was talking about that. It was one of the many trials that Max Zuckerberg was there. And he was saying like, okay, of course there was a lot of, you know, interest for him, but he, and I agree with him. I don't think he honestly thought 
his company gonna have a key role into the politics of Zimbabwe and mm. for the reason he doesn't have people who talk the language uh, in Zimbabwe he cannot really censor or decensor mm. uh, certain kind of posts that go viral there and therefore you just create a mob that believes in something that, so it's just like as I said it became an infrastructure we rely so much in our day by day lives like you found your job by a social media i found my current job via social media people listening to this probably are because i did a post on linkedin or something and it would completely not exist if i mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. posted this and you know if it doesn't exist on linkedin google and facebook it's you might assume it doesn't exist at this point yeah and i mean it's there there's nowadays a very like sort of biased discussion around this and we tend to perhaps demonize those companies like they, they are there and they're providing a service that is perfectly valid and that in many, many ways is a positive thing. But like we said, it became sort of this de facto infrastructure, but it is a private company providing infrastructure. So how do you then align yeah, the interests? Yeah, how do you align their interests with everyone else's, right? And so you see a lot of this happening in the European Union. So the European Union uh, had some constraints, for example, for Google and Facebook in the sense of how much tracking they can do. Um, and this, I think this discussion started primarily like in Belgium and those sorts of countries and sort of like spread out uh, to the point where the entire European Union at some point said, okay, you either uh, follow the sort of the data collection regulations we have here or you can just, just get off, just get off this entire continent. And this is, of course, a leverage force that you don't have for individual countries. Like you can forget some, like, I don't know, Liechtenstein actually being able to do that. But if you combine the entirety of the block, then it just works, right? It actually didn't yeah. work. Not saying or, that it did. Or you were as powerful as China, just like, I'm going to do my own network. Correct. I don't care. Yeah. But then you have other surveillance problems that we don't have to necessarily go exactly. into, right? Exactly. <laughs> but, yeah. What's, what's the alternative, right? So you yeah. either, and, and it's funny, it's funny. I think we at some point we talked about it is like completely like tangent, but it's like, we have this very different word views that is mainly like westernized or like mm -hmm. Asia view of the word. And like, if you actually look at the practicalities of the day to day, it's just the same. Like, yeah, yeah we have Google and Facebook and China has the party and, but for the, for the, for the average person, yeah, you're yep. being surveyed and you're just a, yeah. You're just a gear in a huge machine. That's it. Like, yeah, that's basically. It. Yeah, but it's, it's true. But I mean, in in that sense, like um, I like like I mentioned the the thing with with uh, cryptocurrencies and that thing being open source from the get go. I think there is more potential in we getting that infrastructure right. And mm -hmm. there's all there are also private companies that don't share their stacks. But then there's a bit of a difference because you're not really targeting end users. You're targeting service. Builders, so to speak, that will use that technology. So you want that to be open source because for users, it's very easy to sell convenience over other values that people don't care about that much, like privacy and that sort of stuff, right? And yeah. so if you have a big government pushback on surveillance and that sort of stuff, it's like you just said, for a day-to-day -day thing, not the most, not the thing you feel the most, right? And then you, you'd rather have really good video calls and really good ads or targeted content on on YouTube than uh than I don't know, I'm being last tracked, right? So this this is also a thing we sort of got slow cooked into a situation that is now very hard to get out of uh with the technologies we have and or not even that slow cooked. It went pretty fast, but it did happen along like ten years, let's put it that way. 
Yeah, but and I, I guess we all have been in that situation of like, depending where you are or your group of friends or something. I remember at some point in university, I just decided that enough was enough. I was, you know, canceling my Facebook for a while. And the amount of social stuff that was not being part of, it was just like, hey, you guys didn't invite me. It was just like, I created a Facebook event. I, mm-hmm. I invited you, but you didn't see it. And so, as I said, it's a, it grew to a point that is, there's not, almost there is no point of just like, I refuse being part of this infrastructure. I'm just going to do my own thing. It's like, yeah, you can, but you're just going to be like some stuff, some battles are worth it to go against. It's just like, I refuse. I'm not going to be part of this. Some of them is just like, they're here to stay. And yeah. uh, that's it. Like you just, you just realize you're going to miss in other stuff that maybe you don't want to miss if you're not just following this huge flow of things that are going on. Yeah, precisely. And there isn't really a whole lot to run to in that sense today, I guess. But um, I hope that there's going to be a bit of a better interaction between governments and uh, and those technology providers, right? That they can actually um, sort of regulate a bit better a few things. And this, this, I hope, is going to happen in general, like we were talking about before, for software stuff. That there's going to be some... Because I think we're still in the, sort of the wild, like in the tailing end of the Wild West phase of software in general, mm-hmm. right? Because as it mm-hmm. grows, as it grows, and it becomes... And and there are things here that are going to force everyone's hand into thinking about regulation and security more and more. Like if you're talking about I don't know automated vehicles and about like algorithms that make that, that take decisions for you and that sort of stuff, which they already do, right? So there is this really good book um, by a British uh, author called Hannah Fry. It's called Hello World, and she talks. She has like a lot of great examples on how algorithms shape our lives, right? So like how everything is decided through some sort of algorithmic force, procedure that you don't see and how that completely changes the course of your life nowadays. And she has great examples. I, like, I, are you talking about our conscious or are you talking about software development now? Software <laughs> development. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but she has great examples in the book, and one of them is like, I don't know, like a guy that was following his GPS so closely that he drove the car off a cliff, right? Those sorts of things. It's really cool. Like, there are some extreme examples. And one of the examples is, um, I might get the exact details wrong, but I think it was in the UK with the NHS, and they're basically, they, they changed the software for how the, the certain, like, benefits were being paid out. So they changed the, the, the algorithm that calculated it, right? And suddenly, people that had gotten like base benefits, I don't know, 100 pounds per month or something, got, um, I don't know, a boost of like a thousand pounds. They were receiving like 2,000 pounds a month. And people that really needed that money that had like 3,000 pounds or benefits because they had particular conditions or needed certain medicine, they suddenly like lost almost everything. And it was chaos, right? And and long story short, there was like an investigation into this. What were the lo- what was the logic behind the software? What was the process? And the company that developed this algorithm, they were super secretive about what the algorithm did. And it was like cutting edge technology, and it was their like trade secret and that sort of stuff. And they had to drill into it, right? Because a lot of people were like getting into debt and not being able to afford care and whatever and whatever. Long story short, the thing was a ginormous Excel spreadsheet, right? 
It was like a ginormous Excel spreadsheet that was just spitting out garbage. And this was their cutting edge technology. Right? And here's the question, like, where do you draw the line between a company providing what is their own product, so to speak, and a shoddy one in this case, but a product that then in its form has such impact on people's lives and that then actually shapes the way infrastructure works. So how do you deal with that, right? It, should you regulate them into opening their source up? Like we have this in Brazil with the voting systems, right? The, 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 I mean, electronic voting is still a questionable idea, but our electronic like boots, they, they, you can actually inspect their source code and they're open source because of that reason, right? So how do you deal with those sorts of problems? This, there's a lot of maturity issues here that I think, like I said, are still, a heritage of this more wild west phase of software that are going to be gradually solved with better regulation, I suppose, because they really touch upon mission critical or, or people's lives, so to speak. Right? Yeah, I agree with you. I fully agree with you. And I think on that note, now that we're hitting one hour and a half and we didn't cover half of the stuff we thought about covering, <laughs> I expected. Uh, I think I'm ending the podcast here, man. And I guess we're gonna you're gonna come back soon for the other cool stuff that we want to talk. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I guess intelligence, artificial intelligence. Actually, we didn't we uh, we barely scratched the surface on software development. So uh, yeah, you yeah. might come back soon, man, if you want. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed the talk, man. I we really did churn through the time super quick. I enjoyed this a lot, and thanks for having me. It was a lot of yes. fun. And by the way, how can people reach out to you? You have a website and uh, you have LinkedIn, I guess. You're more yeah. active, I guess, in your own website. Yeah, I have to <laughs> little, little self-promotion. So it's uh, Martin VB, V as in, I don't know, Victoria and B as in ball, martinvb.com. <laughs> and, uh, I got a little so, in the comments. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, but yeah, I have some tech stuff there and all the other contacts are there. And so if you're looking for some freelancer stuff, I can hook you up. Just kidding. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, it was a blast, man. Thanks for having me. Bro. Cool. Thank you very much.